Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. So very excited that I'm going to have on Judith Polgar. Let me tell you a story because it's really fascinating. In the late 1960s, a young man named Lazo Polgar, P-O-L-G-A-R, a teacher and a psychologist, he had an idea for, let's call it an experiment. He specifically wanted to marry somebody who agreed with his ideas about education and that they would have children. They wanted to have six children or he wanted to have six children and they would focus them at an early age on a topic that the kids would gravitate to, whether it was tennis or music or math or chess or whatever. And they would homeschool them and teach them in a very focused manner this topic and see if they can create champions or the best in the world. So it was an, an interesting experiment. It was He was basically testing ideas. Is, is achievement talent-based or skill-based? you know, slash hard work. And his opinion was, is that talent is useless and that hard work, dedication and perseverance and learning how to learn were the important things in becoming a master level or world level achiever at any topic, any domain at all. So Lazo Polgar's three children were Susan Polgar, who at a very young age became a the, the, the first female chess grandmaster uh, who was ranked as a grandmaster along uh, according to the male standards at that time and then she was the women's world champion and then uh she's very successful you know one of the best uh female chess players ever the second daughter sophia polgar was also a great chess player she was an international master and she had one of the top five tournament successes ever and then the third daughter judith polgar she didn't play in exclusively women's tournaments. She played in tournaments open to everyone. She became the youngest grandmaster in history at the age of 15 years and four months, beating Bobby Fischer's record. Bobby Fischer's record had lasted for 30 years until Judith Polgar came along. Actually, maybe more like 35 years until Judith Polgar beat his record. Bobby Fischer had famously said he could beat any women, giving them peace odds. And clearly he did not expect that 35 years later, actually uh, the Fishers and uh, or Bobby Fisher and the Polgars knew each other. Judith Polgar went on to be in the, among the top 10 players in the world, male or female. She was the only female to ever achieve that status. It's definitely the best female player in world history and one of the best ever in, in history. Uh, if you want to see an example of her play, 
at the at the end of uh, this podcast in the outro, I'll list a few of her games you should check out and, and and where you can find them. I was very interested in talking to her for a few reasons. One, of course, uh, I'm a big fan of her games. I I remember in 1988 watching the young Judith Polgar. Uh, I don't know if she was 10 years old or what. Uh, play in the New York Open, which I think she she won that tour. I was playing in that tournament. I didn't win, of course. I came way, way lower. Uh, she, I believe, won that tournament. Uh, more recently, I saw her when she was uh, she was the commentator in 2016 in New York City for the uh, uh, World Championship match Magnus Carlsen was playing. Uh, more recently, I've also, if, if for, for chess players, I've been studying her course uh that's on chessable.com called master your chess with judith polgar and for any just casual chess player her father laszlo polgar who started this experiment has a book called chess and it's 5334 problems and you could just imagine the kind of work she did because she studied and as she says in the podcast she made some of the problems that are in this book and uh it's a very very intense book and and worthy of study and uh, she also organizes the Global Chess Festival, which can be found at globalchessfestival.com. Anyway, here's the conversation. It's fascinating. And in the outro, I'll describe a little bit what I learned about talent versus skill and adult improvement. Can adults use these techniques? Do you have to be four years old or can, can you be an adult? I'm, an, I'm 53 years old. I want to be able to learn and be an, a high achiever at things I pursue. And so I'll talk a little bit about what I learned. Here's Judith. I'm really uh, glad she came on the podcast. So Judith, I'm going to talk about the global chess festival and your course on chessable and whatever else you want, but I'm very interested. And I know you've talked about this a million times, but I'm very interested in your background and how adults now could take the way you learned and became such a great success and how they could use that knowledge as an adult to maybe improve at whatever area of life that they they love. You and your sisters were considered prodigies and, and you achieved such success so young. And a lot of it was due to your father's philosophy of education. And maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Uh, well, I don't know where to start. It's a long story. Uh... Well, my my father uh, was reading a lot. He's a teacher and uh, he was a high school teacher. He was uh, reading a lot about education and uh, why people became successful and uh, and how that happened. And somehow he was reading about uh, famous people like Mozart, for example, and some others that they became so good because they started to do what they did as a profession already very young age. So they started out when they were five or something. And then he believed that, okay, he wants to do the same story. And uh, once he's going to have a wife and he wants to have six children, then for sure they are going to be focused on one specific field and being homeschooled. And uh, so when he found my mom and when they were uh, dating at the, uh, well, she was from Ukraine, from the Hungarian part. Then my mother was very surprised. Who is this man who is talking all these very strange things? 
But okay, eventually they got married. They got Susan. Do you my, think, uh, and I'm, so, I'm sorry to interrupt, but do you think he would have married her if she did not agree to these ideas? <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure, but I think that's how it is generally with couples, right? That you tell your ideas and if it doesn't really fit to the other one or it's not very appealing, then you're not going to get married, right? So All right, good she, point. I mean, she was okay with it. Like she said, okay, it might be interesting and then we'll see. And Susan was born. So when she was three and a half, she found the chess box in the house. My father started to teach her. And she's also she was also pretty good in mathematics. And at age of four, where uh, Susan won already the under 11 girl championship in Budapest with a full score. Somehow at that point, my father said, well, maybe actually it's time to decide which direction. Is it mathematics or chess? And uh, I strongly have the feeling that it was chess because of several reasons. What uh, my father always says that, well, he picked chess because it's more objective. So two people plays against each other and the better wins. Of course, it's not that simple, but still. And uh, I think the other one also that it was 72. My sister is from 69. So it was around the, the match of Fischer-Spassky, and I think the whole world was exploding from chess. And um, so this is how it started. And when Susan, uh, when I was born, Susan was already successful in chess. So it was very natural that I'm going to be a chess champion again. At least that's what my parents thought when I was a baby. And uh, so that's how it all started. So do you think this could be applied to any family. Like let's say anybody listening to this had kids and said, look, from the age of five on, I'm going to teach them the violin and, you know, mix it up a little bit with athletics and other things, but primary get the violin coaches in here, get them playing violin every day, have them work on thousands of exercises with the violin. Do you think those kids would be among the best in the world at the violin by the time they were 15 years old, say? Well, I think it's kind of uh, tricky from different angles because, first of all, both of my parents are teachers, which means that uh, when they were uh, creating this environment, and as my father was saying, the started the experiment, I mean, it was important that uh, it's not only that they believe that this is the best road for us to break out from a very modest lifestyle, and to, to give us the maximum. But also they are both teachers, which means that they know how to deal with kids and how to teach them, how to motivate them, how to give them positive feedback and so on and so forth. So for sometimes they were, they were still actively being teachers, but after some time they had to give up their own job and they were really focusing only mentoring us and uh, doing all the arrangements with the coaching, with the traveling, and so on and so forth. So this is one part of it. The other part, uh, of course, that uh, uh, you have to be homeschooled for this. So not every parent uh, can do that. And also not every parent believes in that, even if they start doing so with their kids. Because the most important thing was for my parents that they had such a belief in this lifestyle that this is the best for their children that even in difficult moments they knew that this is what they still want to stick to because this is what they believe that it will be giving us the biggest success 
and happiness as well. Because there are a lot of points where they could have given up uh, this uh, journey. Because this is not a one-year uh, journey. It's decades of journey. And it happens that you really have to hang on and support each other. And also to handle the attacks, what other people do to you. In Hungary, of course, it was very difficult for us because the Hungarian Chess Federation didn't agree that we were playing against men. But generally speaking, the most common thing for someone to send their kids into school, right? So whatever different lifestyle you create, you're always going to have much more people criticizing you. And you have to deal with that. You have to be strong. You have to be a believer that you are on the right track. And then the third part, if your kid is going to be a world-class violinist or, or piano player or whatever, that is a completely different story. And I think that's not exactly the point from my perspective. It's more that if the kid can be the best she or he can, that's already a great thing. If they love what they do, that's the best thing. And, and they have to understand that there is a way back. I mean, if they don't like it after a few years, they can still go back to classical education, go to school daily. Well, was but there ever a part that was really frustrating for you in this process? Like, was there ever a point where you were like, I can't do this, I'm, I'm giving up, or I don't want to do this? Were you a rebel at any point during this? For me, it was uh, not like that because uh, actually I started to have successes and good results at a very young age. Like the first tournament I won uh, around the block, which I played, I was six years old. And I was nine years old when I won the first international tournament, New York Open, when after that I was on the front page of New York Times. So I started to be so successful at such an early age that uh, there was no point where I said, oh, what is chess for me? I shouldn't do this because whatever. I mean, success is always something supports your, uh, uh, your way, right? Whether you're a kid or an adult, it doesn't really matter. And so in the whole talent versus hard work argument, where do you, where do you think the equation is? I think your, your dad might have said at one point, it's 99% hard work. There isn't really such thing as, as talent. But maybe passion feeds talent a little bit. Well, it's like chicken and egg, you know. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a very difficult thing because, of course, I grew up in an environment where my father always said that every child is a genius if you give the, those circumstances and opportunities. And at the same time, uh, still every child is a different character. You can little polish and, and make it uh, little, little changes you can do, but of course, everybody is their own character. And, uh, but I also believe that talent is by far overestimated in, in the world generally. Because talent is great, but uh, talent without work is much less than work without talent. And how many hours a day were you and your sisters uh, working at this, at, at, particularly when you were very young? Uh, well, in the beginning, uh, I started out with like 10 minutes, 15, and then it was increased. By the time I was playing internationally, I was uh, playing uh, six, eight hours a day for sure. 
and I, I have um, actually, I've your your father's book of these five thousand three hundred thirty-four problems and combinations and so on. Were these? I guess these were the problems you guys went over and and drilled into your head, you know, while studying. Well, it's not only that we went over, but uh, some of them we were making them. Ah. <laughs> oh, I love the mate and two composed problems. Uh, those are incredibly difficult. Uh, and if there was if there was any one thing you studied that you feel was the 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 most important, like the twenty percent that gave you the eighty percent of the value, what do you think it was? What what aspects of study really gave you the greatest leap in improvement? Uh, I think it was very important, for example, that uh, almost daily basis uh, I was doing playing blindfold chess. Like I, mm. I don't see the board and, and uh, by memory making uh, the moves and practicing. That was, I think, something special which gave an extra boost to my calculation skills and my imagination. And uh, so that, that was something very important. And uh, in those times, uh, solving problems, it was, uh, it was a very essential uh, part of my preparation and which gave a great boost to it. Nowadays, those things are not enough. And in, the, in previous days also, of course, there were a lot of other things, but nowadays you have to have actually different skills than before. Like what? Well, first of all, technologies uh, change the sport itself because you have to work with, it's like when I was a kid, I was working alone or most often I was working with my sisters, a coach, and then you have a, a partner who you are uh, testing your ideas, right? And analyzing it and you come to a conclusion, then you write it down, then you test yourself in a tournament, then you go back, you analyze it, you improve on that. So that was kind of a process which was very normal. Nowadays, it is completely different. These days, you don't give the biggest attention to man's uh, analysis, human analysis, but you give the biggest attention to the engines, what they are suggesting and how they are analyzing your mistakes, what you have been doing. And that is a completely different uh, psychological uh, part also of the game. But still, the the vision you have to have the ability to to see, you know, solve situations, be creative, be creative in solving, you know, unusual positions and so on. Yes, but creativity has a completely different dimension now to chess, because uh, you have to be creative in a very different way, and in your preparation, practically you have a much more, much less creativity element. In the middle game part and in the final part of the game, in the end game, then you can be more creative. But uh, when you play on a tournament, it I think it became much more as a sport. So, so this is obviously giving you very uh, strong or different opinions about education in general. Like if you were to take the educational system in whatever country, it's all pretty much the same. What would you do? to, you know, in, in our, you know, going to school, you learn like 10 different subjects in one day. You don't remember any of it. What would you change about the current educational system? And have you done this with your kids? <laughs> uh, 
uh, no, they are going to school. And I can't say that I'm so proud of it that they are going to school because I obviously see very much the drawbacks. Uh, I think the whole education is something that uh, it's kind of an old mentality because with technology, you can simply learn everything so much faster. You can motivate kids so much easier that simply the teachers, from my understanding, it's just they have a different role nowadays. They should have the the personal touch to it, especially when we talk about children of age five, six, seven. I mean, for them, it's important to have someone there mentoring them, to be kind to them, to help them out with things. But they don't need help in learning in many cases. So it's only like the teacher should be there as a net around you, that if you fall, they put you back on track. It's much better to learn things in a playful way. And when you are five, six years old, all the information you just uh, pick up so easily that uh, I think that's the direction they should be going, to have games in the classrooms, to think, to connect different things. And this is why I believe also that chess has really a place in the 21st century in modern education because uh, also teachers can use it very well, uh, giving a, a great push to their social emotional development for kids, also in motivation for kids for learning. Through chess, you can, with chess, you can integrate it into many different subjects for them to make it in a faster way, in a more playful way, in a way that kids are really getting as fast as possible the positive feedback. Because this is one of the things which kids are uh, lacking in school, that they are not inspired by the teachers. They are usually try to be afraid or they don't know what to do. And actually, uh, teachers should be inspiring them, pushing them. You're good, you're great. But uh, in, not in every country they have that. So, And I think generally it's also misunderstanding many times that if you demand from a kid to learn a lot of hours, that how bad is this? I don't think so. I think kids don't mind to be and stay curious and learn, but they are really frustrated when they have to learn things which they don't care about when the teacher is not giving the material in a way that they are inspired and they, they are interested, those are the problems. And uh, I just wish that it will change. It's almost as if you view, and, and I agree with this, that you view information has become sort of a, a commodity because of technology. All information now is at our fingertips. And really what's lacking is motivation and tools for motivation. I think uh, that's one of the most important thing in education. As and you, if if you have a you have a kid, whoever has, they know that when kids are five six years old, they are so curious. They want to learn. They are asking questions nonstop. And if you see a kid of seven, eight, nine, ten, they are just busy with their studying, right? And actually, curiosity is something you you shouldn't kill uh, with the kids. I mean, that's one of the most important things because that's such a drive from what you have that if you're curious about things, especially with the internet and stuff, 
you're just you you get so many information so many knowledge as you want it's endless let's say you're someone's an adult listening to this is it possible to somewhat emulate not completely which is would be impossible but your learning process as an adult is it too late for many people say it's too late for adults to learn a new skill at a very high level and i'm not saying be world champion of something but how do you think one can use these ideas as an adult improver of chess or any subject first of all when you're a kid you go with the flow when you're adult it depends on you how do you approach things and what is your mindset and this is something very important uh, to understand that you have to have a mindset where you keep yourself busy the things which you like but you also understand when you have to change you do have to make those very difficult or painful steps and i think these are the ones which not everybody is ready to to take including myself i mean of course we don't like to step out from our comfort zones right but still to a certain degree if we want to improve if we want to have uh, great experiences we should be doing that and uh, well it's never too late i think to learn anything of course if you have the passion for it and the curiosity it's the same for adults then you're going to be learning much faster nowadays you have to be very re resilient and you have to be ready to change from one job to another and to learn new skills, whether it's technology, whether it's communication, whether it's uh, uh, any soft skills, whatever. I mean, all those things you always have to improve from day to day. Like, let's say you decided right now, I want to be a computer programmer and a great computer programmer. What, knowing what you know about a, achievement at a high level, how would you start learning these, this skill? Uh, well i think uh, first of all i would try to look for probably on the internet to look for some good stuff try to observe and analyze the opportunities i would have and then once i make the preparational moves then i decide on something on one route i go but it's also important i think that once you start a route if it's not 100 percent that it's really perfect you also have to be ready to have uh, have to change and be self-critical this is also something i learned from chess that to to uh, rethink your roots or your ways it's something very important if you happen to be on the on the bad direction and then i have to practice a lot i have to spend a lot of time on that and on different uh, situations difficult situations not to give up so perseverance i think it's very much needed especially when you you want to change completely on uh, on a different uh, job but uh, you have to make yourself motivated for that so there's all these meta skills like perseverance ability to recognize when a route is not going the way you want so you have to be able to figure out how to change it what about repetition versus experimentation because there are elements of both in your learning of chess you need both and in chess of course uh, it was uh, something i was doing quite a lot because uh, you have to keep a balance on discovering things and experimenting with things but the bottom line is you have to play your game whether it's a chess game or you have a project that you have a deadline to it doesn't matter 
So many times when I'm doing, for example, I'm organizing a chess festival or whatever I'm doing, many times I with the educational program I have, so I do a lot of things like, okay, let's discover with my colleagues also, what are the options? So let's, this is an option, that is an option. So then another 15 things are an option, but actually when it comes down to time and the execution and really to do a product, for example, then we have to cut the things and eliminate things that, okay, this is too much, this is too expensive. So to analyze all the things and then move it with a clear vision forward. As you and your sisters were rising up on the international competition scene, were you ever angry at each other? Would you ever like lose to Susan a bunch of times and be upset at her or upset at yourself? Like how did, how did you guys maintain psychologically being a family and being so competitive? Well, actually, it was a family thing that uh, my mother said that whenever we play, she doesn't want us to fight against each other. So we practically almost all, my, all our career, whatever stage, who was better, we made a draw. Only very few exceptions when there was not much at stake in the tournament. Is this why, or one of the reasons why, obviously there were a lot of reasons, but Susan rose up, became the women's world champion. You uh, only played in, you know, uh, the regular tournaments, the not the ones just exclusive to women, but you, you were in the men's top 10. You played against many and beat many world champions. Uh, is this one of the reasons so that you wouldn't meet competitively? Like you wouldn't play against each other in the final match for the world championship? Oh, no, we, we were raised the way in principle that as a girl, we can reach uh, everything what the boys can. So my parents were, uh, were not stopping us. They didn't say that. They said, you can do it. And this was something extremely important. It's only that uh, later on when Susan recognized that she's not going to make such a big steps ahead in the open section between men, then she decided that, okay, maybe it's why not to try it and get the, the world championship title in between ladies. So that was the reason she, she tried. And so it's interesting, all three of you had, and every player in the world has different plateaus. What do you think it would have, like you were in the top 10 of the world. What do you think it would have taken for you to be number one? Uh, well, in one hand, if I would know, then maybe I would be. Secondly, uh, well, of course, there are very few world champions out there. I mean, uh, uh, more than 100, during more than 100 years, there were all together uh, 14 world champions or 15. So, uh, which means that obviously you need many different skills and luck and everything else uh, to be able to come, to become a world champion, right? I don't know. I, I, I don't know what, uh, what extra things I would have had. Maybe I should have uh, changed uh, to, to different trainers or to have more trainers or I had to change my opening repertoire better or... Uh, there are a lot of things that uh, there are small details that uh, kept me only in top 10. 
So it, it's interesting because I wonder how much of plateau is related to self-reflection about, you know, a, a, as well as motivation, the desire to go to be number one and, and take those years and make those changes, maybe getting out of your comfort zone in ways that are uncomfortable. Uh, I don't know, because again, everybody has a different plateau for different reasons. Like you mentioned, Susan reached her plateau and and so on. So I'm just, I'm always curious about that. But I want to mention you're organizing October 9th, the Global Chess Festival. There's so many amazing events. I'm gonna, It's online, so I'm going to watch as many events as possible. You're a conversation with you and Gary Kasparov, for instance, uh, uh, dessert with the Polgar sisters. There's going to be also tournaments. And um, I'm, I'm interested in the composition contest, actually, the which demonstrates chess artistry. Well, what got you started with this festival? Well, we started out many years ago when we started with an afternoon event. It started in 2007, but the Global Chess Festival itself, it's only seven years uh, old. We want to inspire people and organizers to have their own chess event on the same day. So if they make their own event, they can be on our website with the details of that. But about the festival itself, which is going on in Budapest, so it's going to be a hybrid festival this year. It's going to be at the National Gallery of Hungary. And we are going to have on stage many different talks uh, about creativity and innovation. We are going to have Erna Rubik also, uh, the inventor of the Rubik Cube, uh, uh, talking about those questions. And uh, then we are going to have uh, other different uh, people from Israel, from India, talking about how chess relates to different creativity parts like biofeedback, and uh, other parts uh, in science. And then we're also going to have an educational uh, uh, conference, which is going to be about how chess can be implemented and be used in a very efficient way in classrooms. So that is going to be a very international and experts are going to be talking about that, who has a lot of experience, also psychologists, different teachers in different subjects. And of course, we're going to have uh, offline uh, all kind of uh, parts where we are going to demonstrate my own program, the Judith Polgar method for schoolers and pre uh, preschoolers as well, and chess and math and different things. So I want to show the diversity what and how chess has a connection between the sport, education, science and art. And uh, also, this will be the offline part, and we are going to have an online part where we are going to have chess tournaments, and uh, we are also going to have uh, the stage will be streamed during the whole day, all those from for eight hours, from the morning until evening see time. And uh, also, we are going to have an interactive chess channel where everybody can learn chess if they already know the moves and have some basic knowledge. Then we are going to have some international chess masters, grandmasters, some of the best trainers out there. And people can find it at globalchessfestival.com uh, and they can find all the details. I also want exactly. to recommend, because I've been going through this, uh, your course, Master Your Chess with Judith Polgar, Part three is now out, but it's parts one through three. It's on chessable.com. It's actually, interestingly, I believe that's a site owned or started by Magnus Carlsen, the, the current world champion, who's quietly become a chess business mogul. And uh, I want to recommend 
your your books you have a th th uh, three-part judith polgar kind of a uh how you're you're teaching chess in these books and the chapter on the king's indian is my favorite text <laughs> i've ever read about the king's indian you're also a notorious or ferocious attacking player so for the chess fans who are listening to this just at, at the very least check out your game versus Ferenc Burkes. i forgot what year but it's a beautiful game and judith thanks so much for answering my questions and coming on the podcast and Good luck with, with everything. Thanks very much. And looking forward to join us on the live shows. I, I, I will be there. Thank you. Thanks. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests. And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love you know turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month my home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. 
ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of Entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So Jay, we just had on Judith Polgar, the highest ranking woman in chess history. She's one of your heroes, right? Yeah. First off, her games are amazing. Her attacking, she has this intense attacking style where right. just looking at each one of her games, you could learn at least one new thing, one new technique on how to attack your opponent, which by the way is a useful skill in many areas of life. Like she has a very much a killer instinct when she could take an easier route to maybe, you know, not risk losing. She'll mm -hmm. definitely take the more aggressive route and wow. and go for it. And I'll, uh, you know, I'll check out her game. Um, Ferenc F E R or it's, so she's playing white and it's against Ferenc Berkes B E R K E S. He was the eight time Hungarian champion. And you could probably find if you Google Polgar Berkes or Judith Polgar Berkes, uh, you'll find you'll find the game on YouTube or on. Do you have the time in the year number, the years as well? Oh or? yeah, it's in um, it's in two thousand three. Okay. And um, yeah, look at the look at it on YouTube. There's a the Chess Network. Uh, is he he's a guy. I don't know what his last name is. Chess Network is a guy named Jerry, and he analyzes the game. Anyway, it's a great game. Another really great game is the game Judith Polgar versus. Another person who's been on this podcast, a young, talented player named Gary Kasparov. And again, Kasparov didn't lose many games in his life. He was, right. he's the best chess player in history. I mean, people sometimes say now Magnus Carlsen, but I think that still needs to be seen. But Gary is, is an amazing, amazing player in every respect. And, uh, you know, it was very, he, he had many games without, many streaks of games without a loss. And there's a great game, again, I think in the 2000s, early 2000s, Judith Polgar versus Gary Kasparov. Let me see if I can find that one, and I can tell you what to Google. Judith right. Polgar, Kasparov, 2002. Uh, uh, it's a, I'm seeing it on chessgames.com. It's a, if you're familiar with chess, it's a Roy Lopez opening. Oh, you could also check it out on, again, the same YouTube uh, channel, Chess Network. It's a really beautiful game. Not so much an attacking game. It's actually, I if you just go through the moves of this game, I challenge anyone to figure out where Gary went wrong and then suddenly he was lost. And that's highly unusual for Gary Kasparov. But Judith Polgar, right. the best woman in history, 
defeated him. But more importantly, this is a, 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 a podcast not about chess, but about learning and education. And so, mm-hmm. so Jay, you were blown away a little by the podcast. What, what, what did you get out of it? Well, I mean, like, I, I, it, it, she has a very, very uh, different idea of learning. Uh, I like that when she mentioned, because like every time we talk about learning educations for kids or teenagers or whatever, I've been through this, you know, I'm Asian. Uh, so like people love to drill us knowledge. Like people will force us to study the informations or knowledge to cram, to, you know, cram inside our brain. But where she is on, understand is that you know knowledge is out there information is so easy to get right now with technology it's all about motivating like That's, educator it, now it's more like a like a motivational education yeah Th- this is this is the thing is that okay you don't need to learn the periodic table of elements you know in yeah. chemistry that's uh, within two seconds i could bring it up on google maybe right. i could memorize it but i don't even have to i could ha- it's i always have google or alexa or whatever near me and it's available, like so much information, information now has become a commodity. Like when right. I was a kid and Jay, when probably when you were a kid, most information was not a commodity. You had to no. learn facts yeah. and remember them and then try to understand what they meant in the context of history or physics or biology or math or whatever. And yeah. now so much of this is available. There are so many online courses, online tutorials, and any fact you need is, you know, available within seconds. Like I could tell you, when anyone was born within seconds, I could tell you their yeah. whole background, where they went to school, where they grew up, what their achievements were, and then right. links to their achievements. So none of that is is critical f- for learning. That's a commodity. Now you have to have a, a good memory, but what Judith pointed out is that these meta skills for learning, like motivation, like you were, you were saying, Jay, motivation, resilience, perseverance, which is different than res- resilience. Yeah. And interestingly, an ability to change paths. If you realize the learning path you're on is the wrong path, you you take a new path. And that requires some ability and self-reflection and, and being honest with yourself. That's yeah. a particularly hard skill. It's very hard, especially if you don't have a coach. Like, So let's say if you're learning something on YouTube or learning something by yourself, if you don't have a coach because you don't know how many paths are there to learn. Let's say chess, right? I mean... Obviously, you know a lot of chess, you read a lot about chess. You know, maybe, like I remember before you had COVID, your learning is you learn tactics and all this stuff. And now you're learning, now you change your path in learning in terms of you're looking at something that's weird out of the chessboard. Did I I put it right? I'm not sure. Yeah, like, well, well, and this is actually an area where it's great to watch either Gary Kasparov's games or, or Judith Polgar's games, their ability to do something unexpected. So imagine right. playing someone like, like again, in this game, she was playing against the eight time Hungarian champion. He's a great player. Like he's not, he's no slouch. And, right. and for her to find a move that was totally unexpected requires yeah. a certain kind of creativity, which it's not like a fact that she learned. She had to basically learn, you know, the facts were always there. She learned them, but then she had to uh, learn how to acquire such great creativity that she could beat another person who's almost at her level. You know, he wasn't, he, I wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the two of them, except for the fact that she destroyed him in, <laughs> when they played. And, uh, uh, but if I were to just look at his games, I would say, oh, he's the, the greatest player ever, but right. she, she tore him apart. Like he was nothing. And, yeah. um, uh, uh, you know, it, it's interesting because a lot of it also is about focus. 
So right. when we were kids, you know, for 42 minutes, I had English class and for 42 minutes, then there was a three minute break. Then there was math class. And then 42 minutes, there was gym or physical education and 42 minutes. There was biology. So it's like, you learn eight subjects in a day. Who's going to, that's a stupid way to learn. And I remember I participated in a program when I was in the summer after seventh grade, I had taken the SATs. I scored high on them as a seventh grader. And I was invited to participate in an experimental educational program being held at Duke university. And there were wow. about, yeah, there were about 50 or 60 of us. And we were basically, I was put in a room with all these other kids and, uh, I was, I wanted to learn math. And so I had, I had only finished recently finished algebra one in, cause that's what we were taught in school in seventh grade. But, uh, we were told to go at our own pace. Whenever we need, whenever we were at an end of the chapter, we could request a test. Whenever we needed help, there were teachers walking around the room and, and they would help whoever needed help. And we were to go at our own pace. And it was a, a, a three-week program. And right. by the end of the three weeks, I had done algebra two, algebra three, trigonometry, and was just about through calculus. So the idea is, and, and this is what Judith was saying, is that if you do what you love, and at the time I loved math, uh, you don't, you don't need, it's not a talent. Like you just need focused time. And, right. and as she even said, the teachers should be there as motivators okay, or coaches yeah, yeah. and not just teaching of uh, to 30 people who are at different levels, boring facts, which are easily available at our fingertips. And right. I think this, and you mentioned Jay, that you need, sometimes you need a coach. Well, I write about this and skip the line can't always find a coach. So you have yep. to find virtual coaches, which you could find on YouTube or in books. Or when I was learning, probably the skill I've spent the most time on is, is writing. Mm -hmm. And I basically not only read ton, like, you know, tons and tons of really well-written books starting from 1990 when I started writing every day, but I would right. also read the, um, uh, criticism, like the literary criticism about these books. So I would try to right. understand you know, what was going on in the author's head. I would think about it. I would try to write in that person's style. So you can, so virtual coaches are a very real right. thing. And, and in some cases, even a virtual coach is much better than a bad coach and probably almost as good as right. a good coach. Although a good coach sees what you're doing and provides feedback immediately. And that's very helpful at all. If I had a right. real coach for writing, it would have been very good for me. Right. What if we call them the guider? You know, sometimes you might not need a coach. You just need someone to guide you. Yeah, that's, that's very true as well, because again, as adults, we're not going to go see a coach yeah. every day. Let's say you want to play the violin now or the piano, or, or you want to be a computer programmer. You're not going to meet with a coach three hours a day, but right. maybe you'll, you'll, um, meet a coach once a month and you'll show them your progress or what you've been working on. And they'll say, okay, well now you should study this, you know, right. and you wouldn't have thought of that. Like for instance, Judith named one skill she worked very hard on as a kid that I had never worked on before at all. And now I'm thinking I should work on it, which is uh, her ability to do blindfold chess, to play chess without right. a board in front of her. Like she, she did it when she was very young, right? Yeah. I was so impressed by that. Like I can't even blindfold uh, do anything. <laughs> I bet you could blindfold tic-tac-toe. You, know uh, you, you know how to play tic-tac-toe? Of course. Who doesn't know how to play tic-tac-toe? Is that the one with X and zero? Yeah. The X and circle? Yeah, yeah. So, okay, let's play a blindfold game of tic-tac-toe right now. So How? imagine the, it's a three by three square. Right, so right, um, right. Uh, uh, imagine, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the square in the top left is one. And so the first row is one, two, three, the second okay. row is four, five, six, the third row is seven, eight, nine. 
So I'll let you be X, uh, okay. and and you go first. All right. Uh, I'm going to be at five. Okay, you're putting it in the center of the board. Good move. Yep. Uh, and I I forget now which move always draws. I can't. I probably can't win now. Okay, I'll do. I'll put an O and three. Uh, all right. Uh, I'm gonna put an X in seven. Uh, okay. Uh, probably not your best move, but I I'll go along with it. Uh, because I'm I'm probably gonna lose anyway. Let's see. Um. Okay, I'll put an O in uh, one. I'm gonna put an X in two. Okay, and I'm gonna put an O in eight, blocking your three X's in a row. All right, right. Uh, uh, I'm gonna put a X in. Well, I mean, this is drawn now. By the time this is drawn now, I'm gonna put an X in nine. Yeah, yeah. There's no. Well, there's what you know. There's no way to win. I have there's a. There's no way to win. Yeah. Yeah, because I have on now. both diagonals and. Yeah, on every yeah. row and and right. oh no uh no i take it back there's one way to win you could put an x on four and then i have to put an x an o on six yeah and then it's drawn and then yeah and then you put an x on nine and, and it's done and it's a it's a draw but you see yeah. you just play blindfolded tic-tac-toe chess is it's, the same thing except it's uh, uh it's an eight by eight board instead right. of a three by three board but it's so hard though i have to like, imagine it and i have to i guess i have to practice it because once i associate the numbers with the blocks it would be easy for me. So in, in uh, I don't know if I, I certainly can't do this anymore, but in college, I remember I played, um, the Cornell had a chess club and I played five other members of the chess club simultaneously while also blindfolded. The, the difference between tic-tac-toe and chess, I have to say, like chess is a lot more harder because each, ch not each chess piece, but each row of the chess piece has different functions. And then there's more than, there's, that's more so that technically there's all, more than two types of the same thing on the chess, right? And then there's like more blocks on the chess. But what's interesting is, and this is true for any field, like right. what, 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 uh, you know, so yes, chess is much more complicated to do blindfolded because not only are there 64 squares instead of nine, but there are a, a you know, many, there's several kinds of pieces. There's bishops, rooks, knights, pawns, kings, queens. Yep. And uh, there's lots of things happening that you have to be able to see. But tic-tac-toe is a good example and a good thing to, to practice. And what's interesting to me that this was the, you know, because I asked her what was the biggest thing that increased her learning. And she mentioned blindfold visualization, blindfold chess. And this is related, to, I'm going to relate this to all learning. In order to get better at something, you have to actually do the thing that you're getting better at. So a lot of people with chess, they just read books about chess and they, read about what's called openings, like how they can make the first few moves the way, you know, a great player would make them. They just memorize these things. Right. But what she's doing with blindfold chess, she didn't mention openings at all, which is what most chess players incorrectly study. What she mentioned is the actual thing you do when playing a game, which is look at a position and then imagine with your brain w what the position might look like five or six moves later. She can't move the pieces around um, while playing a game. She has to right. visualize it almost in a blindfolded fashion. And so right. I think to get better at something, you can't, like, if you want to get better to be a better piano player, maybe you could read a book about piano theory, but that'll only help you a little bit. You actually have to sit down and play the piano, preferably right. with either a guide or a virtual guide or a virtual mentor or whatever. 
And I think this is a very important concept. You can't, you can't, you have to do what right. you're doing when you, when you're doing the skill, you have to be able to simulate that somehow in your training. Right. You, there's not, yeah. there's no other, everything else is just fluff. Like maybe it helps right. a tiny bit, but, but for chess, you need to be able to think in a very difficult fashion. You can't right. just memorize stuff like right. many people think you need to do. Well, okay, I have to take back something. I have to take back that the the I, I think I think the the visualization is great because I just realized something. Uh, visualization is great, like not just only on chess, like I said, not just only on chess. So let's say, let's take a uh, piano play for instance. So like, yeah, like you said, you know, like you have to do, you have to practice all day. But but to get better uh, at piano, I doubt it's just playing all day because sometimes you get a score. You have no piano around you, but you have to practice at the same time. So you have to visualize the keyboard in front of you. You have to visualize yourself playing the keyboard at the same time. Yeah, and imagine that you're you're doing like some kind of improv or jazz thing, and you want to yeah. do a blues. So you might know the theory about how to turn a, a chord, a particular chord, into a blues chord. But you're looking at the score, and you might say, "Oh, you're visualizing it, and you're visualizing how it sounds and how the structure of the score is." And you right. say, oh, here's a good part where I could put this, you yeah. know, I can maybe speed up the tempo a little bit, do something unexpected. No one's expecting right. the tempo to, to be sped yeah. up. And I think, I think creativity is when you're trying to figure out, music's a great example. In music, right from the beginning notes, people expect the song to resolve. And right. the creativity is how the musician extends the beginning, the, the expectation you know, from happening, how, how you right. extend that expectation happening. And you could do it in a really bad way with discordant notes that have no place in the piece. Or you could say, right. oh yeah, from my experience playing, I know that if I do this in a blues song, it'll be unexpected. And maybe it'll, it's an experiment. I'm going to try something creative. I'm going to do something that should be in a uh, upbeat song in the middle right. of a blues song. And then I'm yeah. going to speed up the tempo and play it louder. And um, uh, But then I'm going to switch back to the blues, but, but in, maybe I'll change keys. So I'm still not resolving oh, yeah, it, but it's in a different yeah. key and, right. and so on. Yeah. So yeah. you could visualize uh, that. Yeah. And also I said like, sometimes, you know, like I, I felt like visualizations also lead to creativity in a sense that like, not only in music and chess, because like, like what I do every day is, you know, like, you know, I, of course I record podcasts and sometimes help troubleshoot stuff. Like do I, I used to do this a lot when I was in school. It's like, I would just, I would just memorize. I was just visualizing myself troubleshooting a uh, uh, broke down mixing console and stuff like that. That's why, like every time when someone, like you know, every time when guests come on, you come on and you're like, "Oh, none of your hardware is working." I will be. I, I'm able to troubleshoot it without me being there because I practice it so much in my brain. I know how this stuff works, just not by yeah by, by blindfolding. Yeah, that, and that's exactly it. And you're able to basically visualize in the past. You've basically been able to visualize situations that maybe you haven't yet experienced. Yes. And that's how you get better at something and better at understanding the, you know, what symptoms lead to what diagnosis. I imagine, you know, similar to how like a doctor might work. Except you're you're like a doctor of of Zoom, <laughs> Doctor <laughs> Zoom. <laughs> sounds that, like you're an, sounds like you're you're an amphetamine drug dealer. No, no that, that's a villain. Doctor Zoom the calling. Flag. Yeah, that's the villain in Flash. Remember, they have a reverse Flash, and then there's Doctor Zoom. Oh, I don't remember that. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah, because like I felt like I, maybe I did it subconsciously because I do this with everything that I like and I love. So like I do it 
like I used to love math, so I would just do it like blindfolded in my brain. Just come up with questions and do math, and then I do it with um uh with the the audio stuff that I'm doing right now. And sometimes when I'm playing games at night, like when I'm before I go to sleep, I will visualize some scenario that I'm playing that character, and then how do I overcome the issues or or how do I play it better? Well, look at look at the, the probably the greatest example of visualization is Albert Einstein. So he oh, yeah. many times described the story of how he came up with his theory of relativity. He imagined a man who was on a spaceship that was flying at the speed of light and another man on earth, not moving at all. How would they perceive each other? And yeah. so it was that visual thought experiment that blind, he was doing blindfold physics that led him to the theory of relativity, that time and space are relative, that, that the person going the speed of light will see something different about the person standing still than other people who are standing still. So, so time right. and space, he basically then from that one visual image came all the math that showed, you know, time and space are relative. That's his theory of relativity. And yeah. so, so again, it was, it's so interesting. And again, I'm, I'm obviously a fan of, of Judith's for her chest, but also a fan of her dad's for doing this experiment, you know, and, and a fan of her mom's as well. And, you know, for agreeing to it and getting yeah. married to Lazo Polgar and having these three amazing <laughs> right. kids. But also I learned not only, I, I do think to take her ideas and be an adult improver, you might not be able to have a million coaches and spend nine hours a day, but spending your time a little bit more focused and doing the hard part of whatever domain you want to master and focusing on that. And, uh, you know, again, having an occasional coach, or as you put it, I think that's a very good word, a guide, uh, you could simulate a little, you, she, don't forget she was, there's, there's 70 million people who are members of chess.com and probably a billion people who know how to play chess. She was like in the top 10 of all of that. So you wow. don't need to be in the top 10 of anything, but you can through these techniques as an adult, I feel, and I write a lot about a lot of this and skip the line, but you don't have to buy it. I talk about it a lot in this podcast. <laughs> um, if you just were in the top 1% of chess players, that means you're in the top hundred million, uh, no, 10 million people. And if you were right. in the top 1% of piano players, probably similar top, probably you're in the top 10 million. So being in the top 1% is a lot different than being in the top 10 of the world. So Judith yeah. happens to happens to have been in the, the top 10 in the world for chess. But I think these skills and ideas about motivation, about, you know, what to learn about, uh, resilience and perseverance and talent versus skill and, and so on and focus and the ideas about visualization, these can be used for, for everything from writing to business, to investing, to chess, investing visualization is very important. Like you have to know, you have to visualize, well, if this happens, I'm going to make this investment, but if this and this, and this happens, which could, you know, worst case scenarios, I'm going to do this, this, this. So you start to remove the, emotion and calculate what you want to remove the emotion from your decisions when they're very high because that will right. interfere with your calculation so visualizing practicing visualizing helps you get straight to the point where you need to make a decision as opposed to letting fear or anger uh get in the way and let me I, ask you this do you do you do that when you do investing in that company i'm just curious absolutely i only think about the the, the best case scenarios 
the invest the, the company will always tell you the best case scenario. We're the right. greatest company in the world. If we sell this to every household in China, then we're going to be a worth a trillion dollars. So they will always tell you the best case scenario, and that, that you know that's great. But the entire work of an investor is to visualize what the CEOs right. are not telling you. What are the worst case scenarios? And there are many of them. You have to count. You could count up to a hundred worst case scenarios. And you have to decide which ones are, are worth thinking about, which ones are nonsense. And you, you know, you have, to, you can't take risks and, um, you know, risk mitigation is the job of the investor, not risk taking. And it's the right. same thing. I will say like, you know, Judith mentions how chess can be applied to other areas. Oh yeah. Chess is all about, uh, not taking risks while taking what look like incredible risks. Again, right. Uh, you can look at any of Judith's games, but I'll, I'll recommend that game for rent against Ferenc Burkess. Uh, 2003, she takes immense risks there. And I was like, why didn't she do this? But then I see like, ah, she saw this risk. She didn't want to take this risk. And, but meanwhile, she's came up with a very creative, un I've never seen the type of way she attacked before and particularly someone at such a high level. So by the way, just to, just to close this, it's kind of funny to me. Like I've, uh, I always considered myself, you know, pretty good or whatever. At least, you know, I'm in the top 1%. But right. Judith was, I, you know, Judith said, hey, do you want to participate in this um, chess, oh, yeah, the chess Connect you uh, program yeah. uh, where everybody helps make moves in the game? And I, I said, sure. You know, and I said, I'm, my rating's a little over 2,200. And she's like, don't worry. There are other lower rated players. <laughs> and uh, it was so funny because she obviously is like one of the best players in, in the world. And... I am very low rated compared to her. Will, will you play her? Uh, yeah, but she would win a hundred times out of a hundred. So, but 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 you will want you still want to play her. Oh yeah, I mean, look, uh, I played. <laughs> remember the first time we had Gary Kasparov on? Oh yeah, yeah, I remember. I played yeah. him. That's on YouTube. If you Google Altachur Kasparov uh, YouTube, there's a YouTube video of my game against Gary. Gary right. destroyed me, and he did it in a very <laughs> creative way in fact it's so funny because just yesterday i was playing online and i had a game similar to that where i was trying to recreate what gary did to me in that game but i couldn't the other guy didn't play he didn't play as badly as i did then and so right. i i couldn't i couldn't get it going but i learned a valuable lesson from that one game with gary about how to uh take advantage of when when a person leaves weak squares on the board and right. so that was all. Yeah. That game was all about my my weak G four square. If anybody <laughs> observes that game, see the, all all that all that it's like it's like gibberish to me. G four. What is G four? For me, G four is like uh, G four. For me, is a type of audio equipment that I use daily. Well, imagine it as the <laughs> uh, in in uh, in tic tac toe. If I had moved, <laughs> if I had put okay. my first O on two, then my then the three square could have been. Or the or the nine square could have been a weak square for me and could have cost me the game if you had played right. accurately. So no, no, uh, I get it. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, so are you anyway, going to the? Oh, sorry, are you going to the, the chess festival? The chess festival. When is the chess festival? Again? October 9th, and I will. I'm going to check out, particularly the conversation between Gary and and Judith. I'm really looking forward to listening to that. And um, you know, right. since reading Lazo Pargar, since going through Lazo Pargar, Polgar's book Chess, there's this thing called chess compositions where you compose these positions that are not from games, but it's like white to move and mate in two moves. And it's very beautiful, very complicated problems. And actually Vladimir Nabokov, who wrote Lolita, and he wrote a book, actually a, a novel about chess called The Defense. Uh, he wrote many beautiful books. Lolita is his most famous. And 
uh, he was a big chess composer and a chess master when he was, uh, when he was alive, like he was, a uh, very much oh, into wow. chess. Yeah. So, oh. uh, there's a lot, you know, uh, in addition to the queen's gambit, which of course, by the way, most that's the TV series. Most people know it as a TV series, the novel by Walter Tevis. I read it when I was 18 years old. It's a great novel. Walter Tevis also wrote the hustler. Uh, uh, what was the, the, he wrote the sequel to the hustler. I forget, um, I forget what that was, uh, the color of money. And right. he wrote The Man Who Fell to Earth, which became a movie uh, starring uh, David Bowie. And he wrote another novel called Mockingbird, which I didn't enjoy as much, but I enjoyed... Oh, yeah. The Mockingbird was turned into a movie. Oh, was it? I believe. Yeah. So it's, Mockingbird. It's amazing. Yeah, this guy, this author that nobody's really ever heard of, even now, with The Queen's Gambit, just won all these Emmys yesterday as we taped right. this. Uh, you know, nobody knows who, that it was the novel written in like, you know, 30, 40 years ago. So, and, and, and the novelist was a great novelist, but he, what didn't he become famous? Like a lot of his other peers, I mean, the hustler is a great novel and a great movie with Paul Newman, you know, color of money was right. Paul Newman and Tom Cruise, the Queens Gambit won all these awards. And, and the series is very much like the book, like it's beat by beat. Like he right made the plot of the Queens Gambit. Uh, the man who fell to earth was a great, uh, novel about kind of the, the human condition. The only one I didn't like was Mockingbird, but this is a great novelist. And it's, it's it, again, like Judith said, a lot of becoming known as the best in something. There's a little bit of luck. Like why was Walter Tevis never really known as one of the best novelists ever? Clearly his movies are incredibly successful and, and, and his right. shows and Queens Gambit was the most successful show on Netflix in 2020. And the hustler is one of the classic movies of all time. And they're, they're, the books are, were fantastic. I can say, cause I've, I've read, read the books, but yeah, so that's why that's why it's also important to to do what you love and and look for your achievements, even if they're small ones, and and not always you know you're yeah. not you don't have to be world champion to be happy with something. Yeah. So, um, but with that, uh, Jay, thanks for this very long outro. And uh, this could I be hope, a part two, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, uh, no, let's just make it one episode. It's an experiment right. of a longer outro. You know what we learned, and let's just keep this as one episode. Okay. Nathan can cut all this out. Yeah, no, it's, Nathan, <laughs> keep it in. Just because Jay said that, keep it in. Thanks. <laughs> all right, thank you. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then... There are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy.